0: Welcome to the equipping you in grace podcast we are so excited that you are joining us for the show today this podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone let's join our host and founder of servants of grace dave jenkins for today's episode thanks so much for listening Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast, and with me today, I have my friend Dr. Kidd. Dr. Kidd, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Of course, of course. Well, can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on uh, in your in your life, your marriage, your work at MBTS and Baylor? What, what writing projects are you working on these days? Um, the main thing I'm, I'm working on long term right now is a book on Thomas Jefferson
1: uh, that's, that's a kind of, I'm calling it a sort of moral biography of Jefferson that's. Certainly includes his religious beliefs and uh, why he did a edition of the Gospels with most of the miracles cut out, including the resurrection, um, and uh, issues about his um, relationship to slavery and Sally Hemings and all, all those kind of non-controversial issues, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. That, those Those are con- controversial. I I look forward to that one. Um, I know that's going to be uh, really beneficial. And you you were telling me about how your other book is doing, and that's also uh, off air and and that's that's very encouraging to, to hear that it's getting such a good reception. So
1: yeah, my book on who is an evangelical—it's definitely a timely topic, and it seems like there's a good amount of media interest in that in that topic. And even a, I think a realization in the media that the way that they've talked about evangelicals in politics has not been super helpful in a lot of cases. So I, I've been really gratified by the response that, that book has gotten.
2: Well,
0: that's really cool. That's really cool. I'm I'm really happy to hear that it, that's doing so. Well, and uh, I enjoyed reading it, so uh, thank you for writing it. Well, you, I know you have a new book coming out here um, in the next couple days, um, next week, as we're as we're talking now today. Uh, so, can you just tell us about this book, America's religious history, faith, politics, and the shaping of a nation? Why you wrote it, and how do you hope it'll be received? Yeah,
2: so
1: this is a, a new book that I've done with Zondervan, and it is uh, an overview of American religious history. You can tell by the title, though, um, of course as you would expect, I give a little more attention than maybe an average American religious history book would to evangelical history. But I, but I do try to give the full range of attention to
2: uh, African Protestant Christianity, but also uh, some attention to Judaism
1: and, and some other non-Christian religions. And, and so um, part of what I'm trying to do here is just give an, an overview for anybody who's interested in the kind of broad scope of American religious history. But also, certainly, I would be very happy if, uh, if the book is used in American religious history courses and uh, history departments and uh, seminaries and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, for any pastors or, or uh, other listeners who want just sort of a good standard one-volume treatment of, of uh, American religion from the colonial period to the present, that's that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Well,
0: that's that's wonderful. I, I enjoyed reading it. Um, I, I did take a class, I think I told you this last time we talked, in, in the history of American philosophy. And so that was uh, that was fascinating when I took that uh, over a decade and a half ago. Felt like this was a good good refresher, and uh, on on a lot of points that uh, I I learned about in that class. So I, I think anybody just interested in American history in general would would find this very helpful. And it's easy easy, well written um, as you would expect from Dr. Kidd. and so it's it's easy to read. Um, but it has a lot of information, and and uh, you'll be you'll be helped by reading it. So thanks for writing it, brother. You're welcome. Can you help us understand how theological convictions help shape life in New England? Yeah,
1: well, one of the uh, early themes of the book is looking at the the range of the colonies, uh, uh, including, uh, obviously, the English colonies, but I also pay some attention to the Spanish and French colonies in North America. And uh, one of the most fascinating stories there is the founding of the New England colonies and the Great Puritan Experiment in, in uh,
2: Massachusetts and Connecticut especially. And so um, it's not that that you know the other English colonies are irreligious or secular because they they're just populated by people who certainly would have considered
1: themselves Christians and if they you know owned any book it would have been the Bible. But uh, in New England there's a real intensity and commitment to the founding of, of those colonies uh, by the Puritans and and uh, they're uh, being persecuted in England in the 1620s and so uh, a relatively small group of English Puritans decide to uh, start a new colony in Massachusetts in 1630 and so for the next uh, 60 years in, in colonial Massachusetts there's sort of this great but in some ways tragic experiment to try to uh, have a fully biblical church and state and uh, to try to conform as much of the law as possible to uh, biblical standards um and so it's really uh, this this story I mean in some ways this is a story that got me into being a professional historian that I, I just found this uh, you know, you know a Puritan experiment in, in in New England to be um, so fascinating and, and to look at the reasons why um, ultimately I think it, it failed because it, I think it's just it's just very hard to hold this all together and Keep everybody's attention through the second and third generation of, of, uh, of people living in Colonial New England to keep them all committed to the same biblical uh, project. I think it's 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 ultimately very hard to do anything like this in a in a colony. Um, it's it's uh, I think we're definitely called to try to do this in a church, but but to do it in a in a political entity, I think is is much harder. And uh, and so as time went on in uh, in Colonial New England, there were more and more people who were. Um, unconverted who were uh, not even baptized because of course they they, um, believed in infant baptism but they believed originally believed that only converted parents could have their children baptized and so uh, the New England society got more and more watered down um, in terms of Puritan commitment and and by the early 1700s the
0: the experiment for a variety of political and religious reasons is pretty much over. Yeah that's really a helpful answer. Um, In what way did the Great Awakening Revival have its roots in both America and in and, and Europe and, and maybe you could help us understand some of these deeper European roots as you talk about on page 35 yeah
1: so uh, as I said you know Massachusetts is founded in 1630 but then you know, by the time you get to the early 1700s there's a lot of um, kind of watered down religious commitment some people of course are still really committed believers but um, in, in the colonies overall I think by the time you get to the, say the 1730s um, there, there's a really wide range of people's religious commitments, and some people have become, uh, you know, pretty nominally Christian and not converted, not really interested in things of, of faith per se. And so that's the context in which you have this great uh, revivalist movement in the 1730s and 40s that leads to the Great Awakening. Um, but it's not—it's—it's not, it, it's, it's not that the, the revival movement is totally unprecedented. Of course, they they look back to uh, biblical precedents. In the Book of Acts and so forth as, as as guides for how you have revival, but there was also uh, a kind of revivalist tendencies within Puritanism itself. So they looked back to uh, the English Puritan tradition for uh, some you know guides as far as revival and uh, the, a life of devout piety and, and commitment to the Lord. Um, but there were also uh, traditions within Scots Irish
2: Presbyterianism, which which really helped to fuel the revivals in uh, the Middle colonies so in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which were so dominated by uh, Scots-Irish traditions. And then uh, even in continental traditions in uh, Dutch Calvinism uh, and uh,
1: the German Pietism and, and so forth, there were there were definitely kind of uh, prototypical sort of revivalist movements going back almost really to the Reformation. Um, and and I think what ended up happening is that all those strains of, of uh, revivalist press going back to the Reformation, going back, uh, you know, 200 years, kind of all came together in uh, the Great Awakening. And so, you know, in New England, there tended to be uh, more of an English Puritan inheritance feeding the the revivals, and in the middle colonies there tended to be more of a Scots-Irish, Presbyterian, or Dutch-Calvinist kind of tradition feeding the revivals. But it all came together um, in really spectacular ways um, uh, in the 1730s and 1730s. 40s, and I, I think a lot of that was brought together. Those diverse strands of, of revival traditions were brought together in the ministry of George Whitfield, who was the most important uh, revivalist of the Great Awakening. And he tended to be the one who knew all the key actors across the different denominations. Um, and a lot of those different denominational traditions were showing up at Whitfield's revival meetings. Um, and, and he was the one who was traveling through uh, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And so forth, leading the revivals, and so it was really in the person of Whitfield that all those uh, strands of, of revival
2: tradition didn't go, that went back to Europe. It was really in the person of Whitfield that all that sort of came
1: together, and you, you saw the explosive re- results of the, the major outburst of the Great Awakening, which lasted from about 1739 to 1742. Yeah, I
0: think that's really helpful. Uh, what what are besides you know, obviously preaching, which you know we know uh, George uh, Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Did plenty of um, just for people that may wonder what does genuine revival look like? Uh, you know, versus obviously, you know, false revival. What would you What would you say to that?
1: Well, I think that to me, the one of the the key factors is that um, the, the pastors in the 1730s really began to call in, in earnest for their people to pray uh, for revival, um, and uh, and and what they meant by that is that they wanted a, a, an outpouring. Of Holy Spirit for um, mass conversions, but also to bring nominal people or or people who were believers but weren't that serious about their faith to get them to be, uh, you know, fully committed to the Lord. Um, And and I I think that that was a key moment because, of course, you know, lots of people in the colonies had been praying before that. It's not as if they were without prayer. But I I think that the Puritans, especially, tended to be so focused on morality. And, and, and not inappropriately, but but they, they tended to get, I think, the cart before the horse sometimes that they would, uh, especially the more legalistic pastors, would, would kind of berate their people about, you know, you need to be moral and you need to observe the Sabbath and all these, these kind of things, which, uh, you know, is, is all well and good, but, but they might have at times forgotten about the importance of conversion uh, preceding um, that kind of godly
2: morality and that that Morality is is better seen as
1: an outgrowth of a of a converted heart, and so I, I think in the 1730s and 40s they got that that theological issue uh, I think brought into focus a little bit better, um, and and they also realized that uh, human effort is not going to lead to uh, revival so much as uh, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, and and so uh, certainly as a believer, I think what what happened is that there was an uh, an outburst of prayer uh, for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the large numbers of conversions and rededications of people's lives happened um, in response to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I just think it was that that's uh, what led to the core of the, of the Great Awakening was that great work of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't think it was so much uh, tactics and, and those sorts of things, although, you know, Whitfield certainly was was quite theatrical. Um, in his preaching, and so we could debate about you, you know how likely it is that that you know this percentage of the Great Awakening was a really authentic work of God, but I I, I think it, it was substantially uh, a,
0: a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for real revival. I think that's a I think that's a really helpful explanation, and and I mean we we know that even if, even if somebody wanted to argue that he still had good theology, so it's not like he's just you know preaching entertainment and uh, you know having a comedy tour and saying goofy things up there on on the pulpit you know we we know what he said and we know that he was solid theologically so
1: right and, and- um, I mean, even to the point of being uh, quite a controversialist
2: about uh, Calvinism and so forth, I mean, he, he famously fell out with John
1: Wesley over the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism, and, and his his preaching is, um, when you go back and you read his sermons, it's rigorously biblicist, um, and, and so
2: uh, he is preaching to people um, even in his evangelistic sermons, he's preaching to people who know the Bible really
1: well, um, and so I, I think, you know, if, if Whitfield was plopped down in our situation today, I think one of the differences he would find is he just couldn't take as much for granted about how much people knew about the Bible. Um, but but uh, so, you know, he, I think he probably would have preached differently if he was in 21st century America. But the, the point is, is that Whitfield's preaching was uh, heavily theological. And biblicists, uh, and and so, so you know some historians have, have tried to portray him as being sort of uh, vacuous theologically, and it, it's just not true at all.
0: Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the work of Adrian Judson and William Carey and their influence on global and domestic missions today?
1: Yeah, so of course, missions have been part of the Christian tradition from the very beginning. Um, you know, you know the, the church in you know, acts being scattered by persecution, and people are um, you. Philip talking to the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. I mean, that, that that's that's been an impulse within Christianity from from day one. But uh, the, there there was in the Protestant movement, I think, less of a formal missionary uh, work going on until a um, little bit with with the Moravians in the in the mid seventeen hundreds. Uh, but the Moravians were uh, a little sectarian and in, in terms of having some what I can would consider to be a little bit of odd theology about some. Some uh, some issues, so that they weren't necessarily part of it. Right in the middle of the kind of broad reform uh, tradition, and so the the we date uh, the the beginning of the more formal organized missionary movement to the 1790s with the work of, of uh, William Carey in in Britain, and then Adoniram uh, Judson in uh, in America in the early 1800s and 18 teens. Judson had experienced conversion at uh, at Andover Seminary, which was an evangelical seminary, in evangelical at that time, a seminary in, in uh, Massachusetts. And he signed up to work with uh, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, which became the most important uh, mission sending organization in America in the 1800s. Uh, and Judson uh, signed up to go to India. Um, but he also uh, began to study the theology of baptism, knowing that uh, William Carey's British Baptist Missionary Society uh, was active in, in India, and he to be uh, working with them, but at the time Judson was a congregationalist and so he believed in uh, in infant baptism, but he came to believe through his study of the doctrine of baptism that the Baptists were actually right about what they thought about baptism, that it was for converted uh, believers uh, not for babies. And so uh, Judson ended up uh, uh, switching over uh, to the Baptist tradition, and he uh, ended up working not in India but in Burma, and uh, and his work uh, helped to pioneer Near, uh, American missions in general, but but especially, specifically, the, the Baptist missionary work. Um, and he was the predecessor for just legions of American evangelical missionaries that went out in the 1800s, and uh, Kenneth Scott Platteret called it the Great Century of Missions, and, and, and it was. I mean, it, it was just it was, it was this unbelievable flood of missionary work that went out from, certainly from Britain, but, but America uh, became, in that century, the Great Missionary. Mission, missionary engine, and so Carey and Judson, I think, represented a new, um, more uh, aggressive missionary organi- organizational turn Uh, that helped to bring the gospel to um, uh, many corners of the earth, including places like India and Burma that had had not had much of an evangelical influence up to that point, for sure. Um, And and I think it started the trend by uh, 1900 or so. It had set the stage for evangelical faith to become much more fully uh, global. And so you start to see the the, uh, break-in of of evangelical faith in places like sub-Saharan Africa. And it it really... uh, in in the very long term, I think it set the stage for uh, the the development that, say, by the beginning of the 21st century, that the momentum for growth in evangelical Christianity around the world had really shifted to the global south, so that uh, the the population of evangelical Christians in the world uh, by the early 21st century was well on its way to becoming dominated by uh, places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and East Asia, where at the time of Judson and Kerry, it definitely the, the center of evangelical christianity
0: was in places like britain and america that's uh that's that's a really helpful answer well I, i'm really interested to talk to you about this question because uh, i i know a little bit about this next topic more so than the others but um you, you write about evolution biblical criticism and fundamentalism what do we do today about the rise of evolution and speak to this growing challenge in particular among young people who are taught evolution as a scientific fact not a scientific theory in our public schools yeah
1: yeah, well, one thing we can say about that is that uh, it's not a new issue. I mean, some of the legal dynamics have definitely changed over the course of the 20th and 21st century. And I talk a lot about the, that legal side of, of the question. But uh, when it first became uh, controversial it was in the 19 teens and 20s, when a lot of southern states in particular had banned the, the teaching of evolution in public schools. So uh, today we tend to have a situation where no uh, uh, competitor believes can be taught in public schools, but it, but in the 19-teens and 20s, it, it was it was the exact opposite where uh, traditional Christians, who at the time uh, traditional Protestants definitely accepted the label of fundamentalist, um, and they they didn't want evolution being taught in public schools. So they had a sort of de facto
2: uh, established status in a lot of ways, especially in the southern states, and so
1: uh, that all came to a head in 1925 with the Scopes trial, sometimes called the Scopes Monkey Trial, where uh this John Scopes in Tennessee, a biology teacher in Tennessee, had agreed to have a kind of a test case about teaching of, of evolution, and he taught evolution, and it was clear that he was he was guilty, but the American Civil Liberties Union was looking for a test case to try to force uh, a legal change on, on that issue. And so I, I think now um, the problem that a lot of traditional Christians have with uh, the way it's handled in public schools um, at, at all levels, from uh, elementary education to college, the college level is that um, it, evolution, even though it is still uh, just a, a, a theory, um, uh, it is a theory that is held by the you know the overwhelming majority of university and college-based scientists, uh, and so a lot of teachers uh, teach it as uh, just a fact uh, and not a theory, uh, and it's and it's difficult to get any kind of uh, other, uh, especially theistic view uh, taught because the theistic views whether it's um, you know older views, but uh, which is what William Jennings Bryan, the, the the main figure on the Christian side of uh, the Scopes trial. Um, that's what he held he didn't believe in evolution, but he believed in an old Earth um, to uh, young Earth creationism, which which is uh, kind of the better known uh, traditional Christian position today. Um, those are regarded um, not as scientific legally, but but as as religious perspectives, and so the courts have tended to hold that. Uh, to teach those sorts of views amounts to uh, proselytism, um, and, and a religious perspective introduced into scientific uh, uh, courses, and so that they've been struck down as as not even being valid as uh, a, a sort of you know alternative perspective. And uh, and of course, a lot of traditional believers would see that as problematic because evolution itself, um, though uh, a lot of its advocates don't see it as a religious view. Obviously, a lot of traditional Christians see it as having at least religious implications about what the, you know the doctrine of
2: creation and the special creation of humankind and so uh that that uh, as
1: you well know is one of the main reasons why a lot of christians have decided to either homeschool or to have their kids in, in christian schools because uh they they don't believe that that the public schools have uh the full freedom to to uh, even have a Christian uh, view on on um, creation and so forth, even represented. So, so it's a it's a real uh, problem, I think, uh, legally and theologically. Um, but that's that's the way that it's played out, especially starting in uh, uh, the nineteen sixties and seventies in American law.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really helpful answer. I, I don't think that the answer is uh, for our kids to be taught that in 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 the in in our schools. I think that the solution is we have to teach it in the church. Church, so that when they go to the schools, they know how to deal with that. They can discern between this is right and this is wrong from a biblical worldview. Which I think, in some cases, I, I feel like some maybe youth pastors need to be reminded that uh, they're supposed to preach the whole council of God uh, to high school students. Not saying that all youth pastors don't. I'm not saying that making that statement or that claim. But but we need to. The youth need solid doctrine, and they they can handle it. I mean, they're they're. Studying math and all these other things, they can handle. You know, uh, a, a solid uh, expository sermon uh, where they're challenged from the Word of God about creation and uh, evolution, and and they're learning science, so they can understand a little bit of these things, or maybe more than a little bit of these things. And so, we need to give that to them it's to equip them. That's that's part of our job as the church is is to equip people. Ephesians four fifteen. Um, and and so. So that's what that's all I would say is is don't uh, we don't need to dumb down doctrine or anything. We have the Bible, so just use what the Bible already teaches and equip the people, the young people and adults in your congregation, or whatever. If you're a Bible study leader or whatever, or you're a blogger or podcaster, just just equip people with the truth, and you know, that, then they can discern the truth from error and and be able to stand fast. So
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a number of issues that and we we. Think about this now with teenagers in the house, uh, you know, that, that kids are going to face things that it, at least seem to sit uneasily with, with what they might believe from the Bible and, and so forth. Um, when they are in high school or in college classes, even at a, at a Christian college, they may encounter some things that, that don't seem to sync up. And, and I, you know, I'd like to think that in our homes and our churches, we help our kids to get ready for that.
0: I, I think one of the best ways to do that is, is just to have a, a place where they know. That they can ask questions without judgment and know that you're a safe person to say, hey, you know what? I don't know the answer to that Um, or or even just say that, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to study that with you and and look into that issue. That fosters, I think, an intellectual honesty that is refreshing even to non-Christians. You know, I grew up in Seattle and I often said that. I don't know, but guess what? I, I'm going to go find out, and and let's go and uh, grab some coffee and food, and and talk, and and people just really appreciate that. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where can where can people find you on um, on social media, and and more about learn more about your newsletter, Dr. Kidd? Yeah. So I'm probably most active on
1: Twitter at Thomas S. Kidd, uh, K-I-D-D, and but I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, if you go to my uh, Twitter homepage, uh, you can find there the uh, sign up for my uh, newsletter, newsletter, newsletter that I send about every two weeks and it deals with uh, issues. I I write there about uh, more professional issues and and challenges of work-life balance and and writing issues and and so forth. And then I also uh, blog at Evangelical History at the Gospel Coalition's website where Justin Taylor and I co-blog on uh,
2: a lot of religious history issues, but especially about the history of uh, Evangelicalism.
0: Yeah, guys, if you're not already subscribed to that newsletter, I encourage you to rectify that today. Immediately uh it's it's a wonderful resource that'll that'll help you with your writing so i would just commend that so, well, well dr kid just as we wrap up this conversation um can you give us a few takeaways one of the
1: um, one of the main points i'm trying to make in the book um America's religious history is that um th- there's a tendency to to think that um that american uh, religion used to be a lot more unified than it is today uh, i think a lot of believers especially see it this way, that, you know, there was a time where we were all kind of on the same page as far as religion goes, um, and that we've fallen away from that over the past 50 years in America. And I, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. Uh, <laughs> But, but when you look at the colonial revolutionary periods, um, there, there was an enormous amount of religiously-based violence, um, sometimes just grotesque violence between Catholics and Protestants, between uh, Protestants and, and their Native American neighbors, and obviously issues about slavery and Christians holding slaves, and, and a lot of issues and, and, and that, that lead
2: to at least fierce disagreements between uh, different Christian groups and so forth. And, you know, it, it is true. True that the,
1: the range of religious options in, say, 1776 was not as wide as it is today. I mean, there were basically no atheists in America in 1776, but that doesn't mean that there weren't just terrible religious conflicts. And sometimes, in, in a way, there were worse religious conflicts than what we encounter now. I, I, I think that the, the takeaway for me is that America has always been a place where religious commitment was really vibrant, at least. Among many Americans, but that religion also caused a lot of conflicts, and so I, I really see that as more of a story of continuity than change. Um, and so I, I don't think that we Christians should look back at the past and say, "Oh, you know, they they had it so much easier back in whatever 1920 or 1776 or some something like that, when when there was more consensus about about these things." So, um, so like so often is the case. I mean, you look at you look at history and you realize. That uh, there, there is in some ways nothing new under the sun, um, and and that I, I don't think that we should be uh, all that nostalgic about the way the past was, but that we should take lessons from the past and apply them today. But that, you know, in a way, it's, I find it it's encouraging that Christians, uh, you know, back in the American past, have often found themselves in situations that are a lot like what we face today. Um, and so, I, I don't think that we should look at the past and be nostalgic or discouraged, but but just to realize. That the Lord, uh, you know, places us in, in situations where we're often going to be in, you know, situa- situations where there's a lot of, of conflict over religion, and that we just need to be faithful to the Lord in the, in the midst of those situations.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a really helpful helpful word. Well, well Doctor Kidd, I, I just so appreciate your the time that you give, give to me to, in these interviews, and and for the great work that you continue to produce. And just pray, Christ versus blessings on you, brother. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, brother. so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at ServantsOfGrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ServantsOfGrace and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ServantsOfGrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.